Forest Hill family. It's great to be with you for another glorious day. My name is Michael Telercio. I'm the pastoral intern at Forest Hill, and you are joining us for day 373 of our daily walk through the Word with Jesus, one chapter per day. We're going back to Mark today, Mark chapter 3 for this morning. If you recall from last time in Mark, we saw the passage kind of end on, not a cliffhanger, but I, I kind of left it open for us. And we're going to come back to uh, that last section of Mark 2 this morning as we get into Mark 3. But we're going to need the Lord's help in order not only to understand the connection there, but really the whole of the passage and to see how Jesus means not to merely be the Savior for some people out there, but for us as well. Let's ask for his help. Father, thank you for Jesus, your son, that you have sent him to be our savior. We love him and we ask that you would help us to see him more clearly as our savior in particular ways this morning, Lord. We need him in every way, but we don't always see how we need him. Would you help us now? Would you help me? Would you help us? Would you help your people to cherish Jesus and in so doing to lift him up, to glorify him in our hearts, Lord, that you would receive the glory which you've given to your son and that you get from him being uplifted. And we pray that our lives would conform to his will, to his character, to who you would have us to be, Lord. In his name, in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, well, we're looking at Mark chapter 3. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountains and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. 
And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, chapter 2 ends with this occasion in which the disciples and Jesus are being accused of working on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds to this accusation from the Pharisees by saying, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And what we see in that response is that Jesus is teaching the Pharisees, even early on in Mark's Gospel here, that the Pharisees' misunderstanding of the Sabbath, and really their misunderstanding of God's law and his commands as a whole, is tied up in their misunderstanding of who Jesus is. They won't understand what the Sabbath is really all about without understanding and accepting who Jesus is, who the Lord of the Sabbath is. And we see that in close-up at the beginning of chapter 3, where Jesus is in the synagogue and there's a man there with a withered hand and he, he knows what's going on. He knows that the people, they, as it says in verse 2, are looking to see if Jesus is going to heal this man on the Sabbath. It's almost like a setup. And he knows that. And so he poses a question. He kind of gets to the heart of the matter. He gets to the, the central tenet of what the Pharisees and the religious leaders believe about the Sabbath. Do they believe that the Sabbath is meant to promote life and health and, and healing and prosperity and blessing for God's people? Is it, is it meant to help God's people or is it meant to destroy God's people? That's what he is asking in verse 4 when he poses the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He's going to extremes here to say, which is it? What is the Sabbath all about? And they're silent. They don't want to answer. And he angers Jesus, rightly so that they don't want to answer because they'd rather accuse him. And as we'll see, they'd rather try to kill him. In verse 6 there, they're trying to destroy him, both the Pharisees and Herodians, who are two groups that normally wouldn't mix. They're doing whatever they can now at the beginning of Mark's gospel to kill Jesus because of what he's doing, because of this dividing line he's putting before them. And here's the thing, Jesus himself is actually the dividing line. 
because he is the one who, as we see in verse 5, heals this man. He is the one who looks around grieved. with He's angry at these people because of their hardness of heart. And he heals this man in a miraculous way, as all of his healings are, but this one especially. He doesn't even say, you know, hand be healed. He doesn't touch the guy's hand. He just says, stretch out your hand, and the guy's hand is healed. So he gives the Pharisees and the the Herodians and those there no room, no opportunity, no basis for bringing a charge against him. He, they can't even say he healed the man because Jesus only said, stretch out your hand, and the man's hand was healed. We know it was Jesus who healed him. They know it was him who healed him. But he's, he's really exposing them here. And he's exposing that the problem that they have with the Sabbath and with this man being healed and with God's law in general is that they don't see Jesus as the Lord of God's laws, as the Lord of the Sabbath. As the, as the one that all these things exist to serve. And in them existing to serve Jesus, they're existing to serve mankind as well. The laws that God gives are for the benefit of his people. But until they see Jesus as the dividing line, they'll never understand that principle. And neither will we. Perhaps we've grown up feeling like God's laws are burdensome and that it's just too hard to try to honor the Sabbath and, and not do any work that we normally do during the week uh, to make an income on the Sabbath day. Or maybe to take a break from school if we're still in school on the Sabbath day. It's a challenge. And it's not until we see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and that he has given us the Sabbath for our benefit that we'll even be able to try to honor the Sabbath or to keep God's laws and regulations in the way that he's prescribed them for our good. But the misunderstandings about Jesus abound in this morning's passage. We see in verses 7 through 12, the next section of text, Jesus again, uh, he's going all over, he's healing people, and he's with the crowds, and they're gathering to him because of what he's doing. And, you know, being a human, not just God, but a human as well, Uh, He says to his disciples to get a boat ready for him. Otherwise, he's going to be crushed by the amount of people that are coming to him. And the people are coming for healing. They're not coming for what Jesus is ultimately offering as much as they're just coming for temporary measures, for temporary blessings that don't really lead to any ultimate blessings unless, again, they understand who Jesus is and they come to him for him. And so there's these unclean spirits that he's casting out who are crying out in the presence of all these people about Jesus. You are the son of God. And Jesus strictly orders them not to make him known. Again, because Jesus has a purpose greater than merely healing people of temporary diseases. He's here to heal them of their true disease. What makes their soul sick and what causes all the other problems in life. Because without sin, there is no disease, there is no corruption, there is no death. He's come to deal with that. But he's also come to teach people who he really is. Again, it's, it's all tied up in his identity, who Jesus is. And Jesus is very misunderstood in this text. But what he's doing is he's creating a new family. And that family is going to be set in contrast to even his earthly family. We begin to see that contrast. In verses 13 to 21, he goes and he calls the 12 apostles to himself. 
12 disciples whom he names apostles. He charges with authority to teach, to preach, to cast out demons, to bring the news of God's king, now here in Jesus, to the to others, to do his work along with him, under him. And he goes home, verse 20, again, I think it's his own home, and there's so many people there, he can't even eat with his disciples at the home. But his family, here's, here's where we get to see kind of the, the contrast between the disciples, the apostles, his, his family who will grow to understand what Jesus has really come to do, the healing he's really come to bring, who he, he'll be training and teaching that. We begin to see the difference between those, that new family and the family who he was born into naturally as a man. Now, to be sure, some of the people in that uh, biological family will become part of his new family that he's establishing, but they'll become part of that family under the teaching that he has entrusted to these apostles about himself. Of course, we know one of these apostles is 19. Verse 19 tells us it's Judas Iscariot who betrays him, but the message he's entrusting to these apostles is what brings other people in. And it stands in contrast to what the biological family of Jesus and what the crowd, what certain people in the crowd are starting to believe about him, that he's out of his mind, verse 21. And so we see that Jesus's family, who ought to recognize who he is, are saying that he's crazy. And then we see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saying even more than that. They're saying that he is not only crazy, he is of the devil. They're attributing his miraculous healings to the devil, which just makes no logical sense. Here's an instance where Jesus uses pure logic to refute what the Pharisees are saying against him. How could I be of the devil if I'm casting out the devil? And so Jesus is saying, what I'm actually doing is I'm binding the strong man. I'm plundering his goods. The things that the strong man, the devil, has bound up, human beings, I'm coming in and I'm binding the strong man and I'm setting those things people free. I'm plundering his house, verses 26 and 27. But Jesus makes a point. He goes beyond just explaining what he's doing. He says to the people who would continue to resist him and what he's doing, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So he's saying, look, the people I'm coming to free from demons I'm coming to free these people and all of their sins are going to be forgiven. But the people who resist me, who will not take what I have to give, who will not be set free by me, those people are guilty of an eternal sin. Whoever blasphemes, verse 29, against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And here's why he said it, verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. You might blaspheme against Jesus himself as a man. You might say that something that he's done is sinful. But if you attribute Jesus' work to the devil rather than to God, if that's what it comes down to, if you will not repent of your misunderstanding of Jesus, trying to figure out like the Pharisees were doing earlier, hey, is he sinning? Is he? What is he doing? He's saying that he can forgive this guy's sin. He's seems to be working on the Sabbath. There's some room there, but there is a dividing line. And if people will not eventually say, well, actually what Jesus is doing is promoting life and healing and blessing people just as God would have him to do, 
If you will refuse that forever, you're guilty of an eternal sin. Really, the question is, will you accept the identity of Jesus for who he truly is, or will you reject him based on your false understanding, your misunderstanding of who he is? That's a question for us to consider. And in particular, just a a little added bonus here for us to keep in mind. We are Jesus's family in as much as we understand who he is and we submit to who he is. And we see that in the last section of text. Who are my mother and my brothers, Jesus says. And looking about at those who sat around him, those who were with him, those who he was calling to be part of his new family, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And friends, the will of God from this text is that we believe who Jesus is, who he has come to reveal himself to be. He's one who heals people, but he's come to heal them of a much worse disease, a much worse problem, a much worse illness and corruption than simply physical matters. He's getting at that in this text. He's showing that there's a heart problem. That's what he's come to heal us of. And just like he healed Levi and he called the the other disciples, the other apostles to himself and they're with him, so may we be with him too, healed of the heart matters that we have naturally being born in this world in sin. Jesus has come to deal with those matters and he's come to transform how we view even God's laws, even the laws about the Sabbath, to know that they're for our good, that we can trust God, not only through sending us Jesus, but even sending us the the rules that Jesus is Lord over, the regulations, the Sabbath laws and, and the like. When we obey God, when we obey his law, We are blessed, but we can only obey him. We can only see it as a blessing when we see Jesus for who he is. He's the one who's come to do it all for us in our place. So let's follow after him. Let's pray that we would be able to follow after him with gratitude for who he is and for what following after him affords us, for how it's such a benefit to us. Let's pray. Father, we have nothing to give you. We have nothing to put before you and to claim your blessings according to, Lord. We have no merit. We have no natural giftings. We have no morality that we can point to. We are a mess. In many ways, we're like the Pharisees and the Herodians, Lord. People who would reject Jesus and reject him uh, over and over. But God, you're gracious, and you're calling people like Jesus called the apostles. You're calling people to yourself. That's our only hope, that Jesus would go and call people to himself. Thank you for that, Lord. May we be people like the apostles, who even though, as we'll see throughout the rest of this gospel account, fail and mess up all over all over and over all the time, you are the author of our salvation. You are the one who is leading us to not commit that sin, uh, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, but to have our sins forgiven, even though we've, we've sinned against the Son of Man, those sins are forgiven because your Holy Spirit is in us. That's the only hope that we have, that Jesus, you would so thoroughly save us that we would be made your people through your Holy Spirit residing in us, pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to the blessing of following him. May we follow him today and into the future and want others to as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, go into this day with joy that Jesus has come to show us that he's come to give life.
He has given life. Embrace it in his name. God bless you. Thank you.